You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Effects of Esoteric Development. This is Lecture 2, entitled The Question of Food, given on March 21, 1913. To the anthroposophist, the effects of esoteric or anthroposophical practice on the etheric and astral sheaths and on the eye are far more intimate than its effects on the physical body. Nevertheless, while we consider the more spiritual members of human nature in this regard, we shall lay a firm foundation for the next lectures if we remember what can be said about changes in the physical sheath. It should be emphasized, however, that the modifications indicated here do not refer to the highest stages of initiation, but only to the early, earlier stages of the esoteric or anthroposophical life. They are, therefore, of general importance. You will understand from yesterday's lecture that through the influences I described, the human physical body becomes more alive and more inwardly mobile, so to speak. Therefore, its presence may present a difficulty for the other members of the human being. We can feel its presence more than we would in an outer exoteric, so-called normal life. We shall speak later of the difference between vegetable and animal nutrition in relation to the other sheaths. The difference in nutrition, however, certainly plays an enormous part in the structure and organization of the physical body. I must emphasize, of course, that I have no wish to advocate any particular kind of diet. I only wish to state the facts in this matter. Indeed, as the soul develops, the facts in this matter become a direct personal experience. We know from experience that the physical body bears a heavier burden when we eat meat than when we live on a vegetarian diet. I pointed out yesterday that the physical body in the course of esoteric development contracts or shrivels, detaching itself from the higher spiritual members. Now, when sustenance for the human body is drawn from the animal realm, the body experiences it as a foreign substance introduced into the human organism, or, to word it more radically, as a stake driven into the flesh. Thus, during esoteric development, we feel more, more of an earthbound heaviness from animal food than we would otherwise. And we become especially aware of how animal food matter stirs up the instinctive life of the will. The aspect of the will life that is largely unconscious and tends to work into the emotions and passions and becomes inflamed by animal products. The observation that warlike peoples are more inclined to eat meat than peace-loving ones is perfectly correct. But this should not lead us to believe that a vegetable diet necessarily deprives a human being of all courage and capacity to act. Indeed, we shall see that what a, person, what a person loses in instincts, aggressive passions and emotions by abstaining from animal foods 
is compensated for within the life of the soul. We will discuss this later when we speak about the astral body. This is connected with the whole relationship between humanity and the other kingdoms of nature and the cosmos. As we experience the processes of the physical body becoming more active and mobile, we recognize to a certain extent in our own bodies the nature and properties of the natural products of the earth earth, that we use for food. Thus, we gradually receive a kind of proof or confirmation of what the occultist affirms about the relationship between human life and the cosmos, even when we have not yet achieved it through clairvoyance. It is interesting to compare three kinds of food in relation to their cosmic significance. First, there is milk and its products. Second, there are plants and the foods prepared from them. And finally, there is nourishment through the use of animal products. We can begin to compare plant, excuse me, milk, plant and animal as nutrients when we have learned through esoteric development to distinguish their effects within the human organism. It is then easier to confirm the statements that arise from a rational observation of the material world. Occult observation of the cosmos reveals that milk substance can be found on earth but not on any other planet in our solar system. What is produced in a similar manner in the organism of living beings on other planets in our solar system would be something totally different from terrestrial milk. Milk is unique to the earthly realm. If we wanted to generalize about milk, we would have to say that the beings inhabiting each planetary system have their own particular milk. When we examine the plant system of earth, and compare it from an occult perspective with the plant systems of other planets, that is, with what corresponds to plant systems on other planets, we could say that the plant forms on Earth are different from those on other planets of our solar system. Yet the inner nature of the plants on Earth does not derive merely from earthly existence. The inner nature of plants belongs in the context of the solar system, that is, Plant nature on earth is connected to the nature of plants on other planets of our solar system. There is an element in our plants that can be found also on other planets in our solar system. As for the animal kingdom, it follows from what I said about milk that the animal kingdom on earth, and this can, be e- and this can easily be demonstrated from an occult perspective, is radically different from any corresponding kingdom on on other planets. If we take the effect of milk as nutrient for the human body, nourishment from milk demonstrates to the occultist that milk is, so to speak, not just the element that binds the human body to earth, but also the element that brings the body together with the human species on earth as belonging to a common genus. That humankind, in relation to the physical system of sheaths, also constitutes a whole is because of the fact that milk, as a living nutrient, provides sustenance for living beings of animal provenance. Everything that milk supplies to the human organism prepares an individual to be a human creature on earth, placed within earthly circumstances 
and yet not actually confined to earth. It makes the human being a citizen of the earth, but does not prevent someone from being at the same time a citizen of the entire solar system. With regard to animal foods, the situation is different. Meat is derived from a domain that is specifically earth-bound, but meat, unlike milk, is not obtained directly from the life processes of the living being, human or animal. Meat is obtained from the part of animal substance that has already been prepared for the animal. Such food binds the human being directly to the earth. It makes the human being into an earth-bound creature. Therefore we must say that insofar as human beings permeate their organism with the effects of nutrition derived from meat, they are deprived of the forces that could free them from the earth. By eating a meat diet, we bind ourselves in the most direct and intimate sense to the planet earth. Whereas milk enables us to participate as members of the earthly realm, undergoing a temporary stage in the process of human development, eating animal foods condemns us, unless we are raised to a higher stage by some other means, to make the earthly sojourn into a permanent one, within which we are completely bound to conform. The decision to consume milk products is like saying, I wish to remain on earth in order to be able to fulfill my task there, but do not wish to dwell there permanently. The tendency to eat meat, on the other hand, is like saying, Life on earth appeals to me so much that I renounce the joys of heaven because I prefer to be wholly absorbed in the conditions of earthly existence. A vegetarian diet stimulates the forces in the human organism that brings us into a kind of cosmic union with the whole planetary system. When, in the course of accomplishing our daily tasks, we transform plant nutrients in our organism, we activate forces contained in the whole solar system. As a result, we participate through our physical sheaths in the forces that inhabit the solar system. We do not become alienated or detached from them. This is something that the soul, as it develops anthroposophically or esoterically, gradually experiences within itself. That is, we have the experience that through taking in plant nutrients, the soul is assimilating something that does not possess earthly weight, but belongs rather to the sun, that is, to the central body of the entire planetary system. The lightness of the organism resulting from a vegetarian diet lifts one above earthly heaviness and makes possible what one might call a gradual responsiveness that develops into a certain inner perception of taste in the human organism. It is as though under the influence of a vegetarian diet our organism really shared with the plants the sunlight that contributes so much to their growth and flowering. You will gather from what I have said that it is extremely important for occult, esoteric development not to bind oneself, as it were, to the earth by taking into oneself earthly heaviness by consuming animal food. Those on the path of esoteric development, then, should avoid animal food to the extent that individual and hereditary circumstances permit, 
The ultimate decision, however, must depend on the personal circumstances of the individual. It will certainly be of real assistance to the whole development of a person's life if meat of consumption can be avoided. On the other hand, certain difficulties might arise if one were to become a fanatical vegetarian, rejecting milk and all milk products. In this case, the soul's spiritual development could incur certain dangers, because by rejecting milk and milk products, we easily develop a love solely for what detaches us from the earth, and thus we would lose the threads that unite us with earthly human activities. I should stress that in a certain sense it is a good thing if anthroposophical seekers do not move toward fanatic spiritual enthusiasm and thus create an obstacle in their physical bodies that would separate them from any relationship to what is earthly and human. In order not to become too eccentric in the pursuit of soul development, in order not to be alienated from human feeling and human impulses on earth, it is good as pilgrims on earth to allow ourselves to a certain extent to take on, in quotes, ballast, as it were, by consuming milk and milk products. In a way it can be a kind of training, not just to live in the spiritual world and so become estranged from earth, but also to have tasks to fulfill on earth. It can be a systematic training not to be a strict vegetarian, but to take milk and milk products as well. Our organism, the physical body, will then be related to humankind and the earth without being bound to it or burdened with the earthbound nature that occurs in the case of meat consumption. It is interesting to see how these things are related to cosmic mysteries and how through knowledge of these cosmic mysteries we can follow the actual effect of nutritive substances in the human organism. Since you are interested in occult truths, you must have become aware that what we find on earth and our physical body is an integral part of earthly existence, does not derive from earthly conditions alone, but arises also from the forces and conditions of essential being embedded in supra-earthly and cosmic nature. This happens in, very, in a very specific way. Take, for example, let me read that again, this happens in very specific ways. Take, for example, the protein present in a hen's egg. We must understand clearly that this animal protein is not just what chemists find in their analyses, but that this protein, in its structure, results from cosmic forces. Basically, these cosmic forces work on the protein only after they have first acted on the earth and, above all, on the moon that accom accompanies earth. The cosmic influences on the protein are therefore indirect. They first act on the earth, which in turn reacts to the composition of the protein with the forces that it receives from the cosmos. Above all, however, it is the moon that plays the major part, in the sense that the moon first receives the forces from the cosmos, and then with the forces that it radiates, works on the composition of animal protein. Someone endowed with clairvoyant vision can see in the smallest cell of the animal and thus also in protein, that not just terrestrial physical chemical forces are present, 
but also see that even the smallest cell of a hen's egg is built from forces received by the earth from the cosmos. Thus the substance we call protein is indirectly connected with the cosmos. Nevertheless, this animal protein substance, as we know it on earth, could not exist without earthly conditions. It could not originate directly out of the cosmos, but is wholly a product of what the earth must receive from the cosmos. What we identify in living beings on earth as fat, which constitutes a part of human nutrition, especially for those who eat meat, has a different effect. Here we are speaking of fatty substance in the animal. What we call fat, whether it is eaten or manufactured by one's body, is built up according to cosmic laws entirely different from those related to protein formation. Whereas the cosmic forces of the beings of the spirits of form are concerned with protein, those beings called spirits of movement are mainly concerned with the production of the fatty substance. It is important to speak of such matters, because only by discussing them in this way can we recognize how very complicated those things are that material science considers so infinitely simple. No living being could assimilate either protein or fat without the cooperation, even if indirectly, of the cosmos, that is, the spirits of form and the spirits of movement. Thus we can trace the spiritual effects of the activity of the different hierarchies right into the substance that makes up our physical bodies. This is why what we experience when the soul has developed antiposophically in relation to the protein and fat substance in our physical sheaths becomes more differentiated, more mobile. We experience this in a twofold way. What merges into a single experience in ordinary human life is experienced after we have undergone anthroposophical development as the differentiated activity of the fats and proteins in our organism. As the whole physical organism becomes more mobile, the soul learns to distinguish two different experiences within the body. One experience permeates us inwardly to the degree that we feel This puts me together. This gives me my physical form. In this way we are made aware of the proteins within us. When a certain indifference is added to our own experience, when we feel, this makes me indifferent to my inner isolation, lifts me, as it were, above my form, and makes me more phlegmatic in relation to my inner human life, this sluggish feeling reflects the presence of fat substance in the physical body. These experiences become very distinct because of anthroposophical development. Our inner experience in relation to the physical body thus becomes more complex. We perceive this particularly in the case of starches or sugar. In this regard, sugar is unique because it is differentiated from other substances because of its taste. And this can be experienced clearly in ordinary life, not just by children, but frequently also in elderly people who have a sweet tooth. However, such differentiation is usually restricted to the palate. When the soul develops, it experiences the intake of sugar and the body's sugar content 
as though receiving inner stability, inner support, and it is permeated to a certain extent with a kind of natural egoity. In this respect, one can extol the virtues of sugar. In fact, in the process of spiritual development, one often notices a need for sugar, because through development the soul aims to become progressively more selfless. Through sound anthroposophical training, the soul, through its own effort, becomes more selfless. Thus, in order that a human being, who by virtue of possessing a physical body has an earthly task to fulfill, does not lose the link between the I-being and the earth, it is good to create a counterpoise in the physical domain, where egoity is not as important as it is in the moral sphere. Eating sugar creates a kind of innocent egoity, as it were, that can balance the selflessness necessary in the moral and spiritual spheres. Otherwise, the human being would be tempted too easily to become not just selfless, but also a dreamer and visionary, and thus lose the capacity for sound judgment in mundane affairs. Adding a certain amount of sugar to one's food ensures the possibility of remaining anchored firmly to the earth and one thus cultivates a healthy perspective toward earthly matters, even while ascending into the spiritual world. As you see, these matters are complicated, but when we seek to penetrate life's real mysteries, everything becomes complicated. As anthroposophists develop spiritually, then, they sometimes feel that in order to protect against a false selflessness or a loss of personality, they sometimes need more sugar. And when taking sugar, they may say, I am adding something to myself that without lowering my moral tone gives me a certain stability, a certain egoity, as though involuntarily and through a higher instinct. On the whole, we can say that eating sugar physically enhances the unique individuality of a person. We can be so sure of this that we can say, Those who favor sweets, of course this must be kept within healthy limits, find it easier to imprint their personal character into their physical body than those who dislike sweets. This can help us to understand something that may be observed outwardly. In countries where, according to statistics, sugar consumption is low, the inhabitants have less defined personalities than in countries where more sugar is eaten. If you visit countries where the people show greater individuality, where each individual is self-aware, and then go into countries where the inhabitants have more general or homogeneous characteristics, even showing less individuality in their outward appearance, you will discover that in the former country sugar consumption is high, in the latter very low. Even more striking examples of food's effects can be seen when we consider those of certain stimulants, for example the consumption of coffee and tea in significant amounts. The effect of consuming coffee or tea for an ordinary person is intensified in a person undergoing anthroposophical development. As I have said, this is not an argument for or against coffee, but simply a statement of how it is, and I ask you to view it from that perspective. Coffee and tea stimulate the constitution of ordinary human beings. But the stimulating effect of coffee and tea on the human organism is felt more keenly by a soul developing spiritually. 
The effect of coffee on the human organism is to lift the etheric body out of the physical body, but in such a way that the physical body is experienced as a solid foundation for the etheric body. This is the characteristic effect of coffee. The physical body is differentiated from the etheric body in such a way that, especially in terms of its form, when influenced by coffee, it is experienced as radiating into the etheric body as a kind of solid foundation for the etheric body's experiences. This must not be taken as a defense for drinking coffee, because all of this occurs on the physical plane, and we would become completely dependent if we wanted to prepare ourselves spiritually by using such stimulants. We are only characterizing the influence of these stimulants. However, because logical, consistent thinking arises from the structure and form of the physical body, the characteristic effect of coffee emphasizes the physical structure and physically promotes logical consistency. Drinking coffee physically furthers logical consistency, that is, consistent thinking based on facts. And although it may be injurious to health to drink large amounts of coffee, for those who wish to rise to spiritual heights, it is not especially harmful. It may occasionally be good to have recourse to the stimulation of coffee in order to promote logical consistency. It seems quite natural that the professional writer who cannot quite find the logical sequence from one sentence to the next and who chews a pencil searching for inspiration would turn to coffee for stimulation. Anyone who knows how to penetrate to the veiled or occult foundation of these things can easily understand this. Even though as earthly citizens we sometimes need this drink according to individual circumstances, let me emphasize that coffee, despite its dangers to health, can contribute greatly toward reinforcing stability. Not that it should be recommended as a means to this end, but it can promote stability. And when, for example, the neophyte is inclined to let thoughts stray in the wrong direction, we need not take it amiss if such a person tries to achieve greater stability by drinking coffee. Tea is another matter. Its effect is analogous to coffee, that is, a kind of differentiation between the physical nature and the etheric nature, but here the structure of the physical body is neutralized or disconnected and the tendency of the etheric body to fluctuate is emphasized. As a result of drinking tea, thoughts become dissociated, unstable, less capable of sticking to facts. Tea, in fact, stimulates imagination, but not always in a very sympathetic way. It does not make for fidelity to truth or for accommodation to the reality of circumstances. It is understandable, therefore, that in social gatherings where great value is placed on flashes of wit and intellectual virtuosity, the stimulation is readily provided by tea. On the other hand, it is also understandable that when tea drinking becomes an excessive habit, it engenders a certain indifference toward the demands of a healthy, physical, earthly body. Thus dreamy fantasy as well as a certain nonchalant apathy that ignores the the demands of a solid exoteric life 
are easily encouraged by tea drinking. The soul does not favor tea while developing spiritually, because tea drinking leads more easily to pretense than coffee drinking. Spiritual development works toward greater stability, whereas tea encourages greater charlatanism, though these characterizations are extreme. These things, as we have said, can all be experienced because of the mobility that anthroposophical training brings to the human physical sheath. I would like here to add, and you can meditate further on these things and try to experience them personally, that if coffee drinking promotes something like stability in the physical sheath, and if tea drinking favors charlatanism, then chocolate mainly promotes philistinism. When the physical body becomes more mobile, it is possible that we can recognize through direct experience chocolate as the beverage of the ordinary, the everyday. Chocolate can be recommended for festivities, and it is very understandable, excuse this parenthesis, that at family festivals, christenings, birthday celebrations, especially in certain circles on festive occasions, chocolate is the customary beverage. If we remember that all of these beverages are stimulants, their influence assumes a greater significance. This is because our normal experience of food influences our ordinary daily life in such a way that we are not merely aware of the fundamental substance that builds and constantly renews the body, but we also become aware, as mentioned yesterday, of the inner independence or the dissociation of the organs from one another. This is important and very significant. Here I must, above all, direct your attention to what becomes evident to occult observation about the relationship between the physical body and the physical heart. To the occultist, the physical human heart is an extremely interesting and significant organ, and it can be understood only when we bear in mind all the reciprocal relationships, including the spiritual relationship, between the sun and earth. The preparation, so to speak, of the relationship that exists now between these two celestial bodies, the sun and earth, began after the Saturn epoch, when the old sun was a kind of planetary precursor of the earth. We must keep this relationship between the sun and earth in mind, so that we can begin to understand fully how the earth today is nourished primarily by the solar activities it assimilates and transmutes. What the solid substance of the earth absorbs in the form of solar forces, what is absorbed in its sheaths of air and water, and in its changing warmth conditions, what it absorbs through the light that encompasses it, what it absorbs as participant in the harmony of the spheres, even though this is not perceived physically, and what earth receives as life forces directly from the earth, excuse me, from the sun, is all related to the inner forces that act upon the human heart through the circulation of the blood. In reality, all these forces affect the circulation of the blood, and also by means of this circulation, the heart. Today's theories on this matter are completely wrong. According to modern scientific theory, the heart acts as a pump that pumps the blood through the body. Hence, it is thought to be the organ that regulates the blood circulation. But exactly the opposite is true. The circulation of the blood is primary. 
through its rhythmic pulsations, its systole and diastole, the heart responds to what takes place in the circulation of the blood. It is the blood that drives the heart and not the other way around. And the whole of the organization concentrated in the activity of the heart is nothing other than the human microcosmic reflecting the macrocosmic activities that earth first receives from the sun. What earth receives from the sun is reflected in the relationship between the blood and the heart. The brain is a different story. Yesterday I mentioned some correspondences relating to the brain. The human brain has little to do with the solar activities that directly affect earth. As I said, the brain has little to do directly with the solar activities. Indirectly, however, as an organ of perception, in that it perceives external light and colors, the brain is very much related to the activities of the sun, but that is merely perception. In its structure, its inner mobility, its whole inner life, the brain has little, practically nothing really, to do directly with how the sun affects the earth. Indeed, the brain is more closely related to what rays down on earth from beyond our solar system. Thus the brain is related to the cosmic conditions of the whole starry heavens, but not to the narrow scope of conditions within our solar system. What we call the cerebral substance is more closely related to the moon, but only insofar as the moon has preserved its independence from the sun. In other words, what occurs in the brain corresponds to activities outside the forces reflected in the microcosmic human heart. The sun dwells in the human heart, but what is present in the cosmos beyond the sun dwells in the human brain. In relation to these two organs, human beings therefore constitute a microcosm. Through the heart we are exposed to the influences of the sun upon the earth and reflect, so to speak, those influences whereas through the brain we enjoy an inner life directly connected with the cosmos beyond the sun. This is an extremely interesting and significant relationship, because as I have said, the brain is related to the sun's effects upon the earth only through external perception, and this is precisely what anthroposophical development overcomes. Anthroposophical inner development triumphs over the world of the senses. The brain is thus free to develop an inner life so cosmic that even the sun is far too specialized to effectively influence it. When we surrender in meditation to an imagination of some kind, then the processes that occur in the brain are unrelated to the solar system, corresponding instead to processes beyond it. Thereby a certain relationship is established between the heart and the brain similar to what exists between the sun and the starry heavens. This relationship between the heart and the brain manifests in particular experiences available to souls developing anthroposophically. As such, the soul dedicates itself in earnest meditation to purely anthroposophical thoughts. The heart forms a kind of solar counterpoint, an opposition, as it were, to the stellar brain. Such opposition is expressed when the neophyte begins to experience the heart and brain following divergent paths. Whereas, previously, 
There was no need to pay attention individually to the heart and the brain, but merely notice how they acted in conjunction. The person involved in spiritual development must now begin to direct attention to them separately. When we consider the physical human sheath in this way, and bear in mind humanity's earthly nature, we have a remarkable view of the human being's place in the cosmos. Human beings reflect the whole relationship between the sun and earth through the blood system and the heart. When human beings surrender inwardly, entirely, to those things for which on earth the physical brain is needed as an instrument, they find cosmic processes from beyond our solar system operating within the brain. We must come to realize, therefore, that people who are pursuing spiritual development must experience the heart and brain in an entirely new way, one in which the impressions of these two organs are clearly differentiated. On the one hand, we learn to feel the processes of the brain in the silent course of the stars at night, and on the other hand, we learn to feel the movements of the solar system within the heart. You see, in anthroposophy we have a path that through a higher degree of initiation opens the way for people to move out into the cosmos. If through higher development, even as described in the public lectures, people stand outside their bodies and look back upon them fully understanding all the internal physical processes, they come to recognize a reflection of the hidden forces of the solar system within the circulation of the blood and in the activity of the heart. People also come to recognize the mysteries of the cosmos within those processes of the brain that may be observed spiritually from outside. This last observation is connected with a comment that I once made in Copenhagen and found its way into my book titled The Spiritual Guidance of Humanity and the Individual. Footnote, here's the quotation. If we examined the structure of a person's brain clairvoyantly, and could see that certain functions are located in certain places and give rise to certain processes, we would find that each person's brain is different. No two people have the same brain. If we could take a picture of the entire brain with all of its details visible, we would get a different picture for each person. If we photographed clairvoyantly a person's brain at the moment of birth and took a picture of the sky directly above his or her birthplace, the two pictures would be alike. Thus our brain is really a picture of the heavens. End of quote, end of footnote. You will gather from this that in a certain sense even the structure of the brain is a kind of reflection of the position of the heavenly bodies at the time of birth within that particular geographical region. It is sometimes useful to return to these questions from another perspective because you can get an idea of the scope of occult science and of the narrow-mindedness of certain critical observations made from one or another viewpoint. Of course, it may seem arbitrary to explain important facts, such as this reflection of the stellar world in the human brain, from a certain perspective. But when supported by other points of view, it is found that they agree you become aware of many more converging streams of occult science and their confluence provides increasingly solid proof, even rational proof, of things that when expressed from a single viewpoint might appear rash. 
Thus you can see the delicacy and economy of the whole human structure. And now if you reflect that human beings take in nourishment and because of this bind themselves to earth, liberating themselves again only through certain substances, especially a vegetarian diet, if you reflect that it is exactly through the assimilation of food that human beings become citizens of earth, you come to understand the threefold human being in relation to the physical sheath. In other words, it is through the brain that human beings belong to the whole starry universe. It is through the heart and everything related to it that they belong to the sun. And through the digestive system and everything associated with it, human beings are, in another sense, earthly. This too may be experienced, and indeed is experienced, when the external physical sheath of the human being becomes more mobile. Through what is absorbed from the earth alone, human beings may sin grievously against the pure forces of the cosmos that are manifested within them. By provoking disturbances through the choice of physical food, they may, for example, trespass against the purely earthly laws that govern digestion, and also those that work both as solar laws in the activity of the heart and as cosmic laws outside the solar system within the brain's activity. Human beings, through food, may thus sin grievously against the cosmic activities in the brain. This can be experienced by the soul through spiritual development, particularly at the moment of waking. During sleep, the digestive activity extends to the brain, penetrates into the brain. On waking, intellectual activity penetrates to the brain and the assimilative activity of the brain declines. When thinking remains dormant during sleep, the digestive activity works into the consciousness and when we wake up and notice an after-effect of this. This experience may well be a true barometer of whether our food is wholesome or unwholesome. When we have eaten something inappropriate, we may feel, as it were, the introduction of organic activity into the brain as deadening, stabbing sensations, which may appear sometimes as little centers of insensibility in the brain. The developing soul experiences all of this in a most delicate way. The moment of awakening is tremendously important for the perception of the condition of physical health that depend on digestion. Through perceptions, when they become progressively more delicate and are localized in the head, we may perceive whether we are in violation of or in harmony with the cosmic laws beyond our solar system because of what we are eating. Thus there is a wonderful relationship between the physical sheath and the whole cosmos. And the moment of awakening is a barometer that indicates when, through digestion, we are violating cosmic conditions or are in harmony with them. Such observations will gradually prepare us for the transformations that occur in the etheric and astral bodies of those who practice esoteric or anthroposophical inner development. The end of Lecture 2